special treat today. We're going through the book of Leviticus, so if you'd turn with me to Leviticus chapter 15, we're going to take a look at a couple of chapters tonight. And what we look at, as we look at Leviticus chapter 15, we're going to be looking at some of the, the ceremonial law, the ceremonial cleansing, ritual cleansing, things that were intended as a sign. What we're going to look at is not necessarily uh, sin, but what we're going to look at is a picture that God's painting. See, chapter 13 and 14, what do we look at? Leprosy, right? Was there any problem in seeing a leper? Folks, you could recognize a leper. Fingers missing, nose off the face. There's dead giveaways. It was obvious, and you could see it. But chapter 15, God's going to talk about some things that you're not going to see, and you're not going to notice. And the reason he lays them out for us is so that we can realize, guys, that there are things that are part of our life that nobody else knows about but us. Well, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to keep ourselves clean? Remember, the scripture in Leviticus is all about holiness. God calls us to holiness, not to be just like everybody else, but to step out from among them. Step out and say, Lord, I'm yours. I belong to you. And God wants us to look at those areas in our life that everybody else doesn't know about. But he wants us to consider those things. He wants us to realize the importance of them. But we also need to realize that what we're looking at here is those things that were, that were designed uh, for ritual cleansing. Here's what I mean. In, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 1 through 9, Jesus is going to hammer the Pharisees uh, because they are going to overemphasize ceremonial cleanliness. They're going to have this incredible emphasis on it, and we're going to go look at it in just a minute. But they have no regard for internal cleanliness. They can do all the ceremonial things. Those are those things that people see. People are going to recognize. But they lay aside the weightier issues of the heart. That, that which takes place within. These laws that we're going to look at in chapter 15 were given for, for hygienic reasons uh, to support the cleanliness of the people. But they were never intended to be a sign for what makes you right with God. Through time... The church has gone through this and made some crazy decisions based out of these same scriptures. We don't want to do that. We want to see it for what it is. God laying out for the nation of Israel some matters of hygiene and for you and I to look at those things that aren't just on the outside. The things that everybody can see. I shared before, people come to the church with masks on. You know it's true. You get in that car and you can fight with your kids and your husband all the way to church. But when you get to church, you don't bring that cranky, grumpy face in. You put your little mask on, you walk through the doors, and everything's okay. But the reality is there are things that take place within us that are a part of us that God wants us to look at and, and really understand, hey, God cares about these issues in my life. God cares about these things that are going on within me. So let's turn over to Mark chapter 7. We'll take a quick look at it before we begin. Beginning at verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him. 
having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples ate bread uh, with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Okay? Ceremonial cleansing. I'm not talking about washing dirt from the hands. I'm talking about a specific way in which they were to wash dirt from the hands. Running water. First, they'd run it this way to drip off the elbows. Then they'd tilt their hands down and had to drip off the pinky, off of both hands. They had to do it a certain way, so that followed the, the ritual cleansing. So they noticed that the ritual cleansing wasn't quite, wasn't quite right with the disciples. Uh, so when they had come from the marketplace, uh, it says they did not eat unless they would wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked them, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things. So he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. So when we look at the ritual cleansings that we're going to look at in chapter 15, as we look at those, keep in mind, they were ritual cleansings, speaking of that picture of sin that can't necessarily be seen, and you're going to read, wash it with water, wash it with water, wash it with water. Like 15 times, he's going to talk about washing with water. What does that mean? John 15, 3. What did Jesus say? Now you are clean by what? The word I have spoken to you. Ephesians 5 tells us that we are to be washed in the water of the word. That God, we need that cleansing in our life. It is the word of God that cleanses us. It's the word of God. The Christian bar of soap. First John 1 John 1.9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from most unrighteousness. All our unrighteousness. We confess that. We apply God's word to our life. This is a picture that God's painting in Leviticus 15. Well, let's take a look. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Specifically, what he's talking about here is a discharge that occurs in venereal disease. He's going to lay out for him that this is unclean. Here are the, the ritual cleansings that should take place in regard to that situation. Uh, and this shall be his uncleanness in regard to this discharge, whether his body runs with the discharge or his body is stopped by his discharge it is his uncleanness. Now, when we look at the cleanliness laws of the nation of Israel, think what would happen if people applied these same laws today. For example, we wouldn't turn on the TV and see advertisement for medicine to help you with herpes, to help you with your outbreaks. Because if you have herpes, you will be unclean. You shouldn't be with anybody else because whether you have an outbreak or you don't, you can spread the disease. Here is an amazing statistic in the United States. I was kind of blown away. Uh, one in three 
have had or will have a venereal disease. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. I, I didn't used to believe those kind of statistics. And I did youth ministry for about five years. And while I was doing youth ministry, I can't even tell you how many times uh, I, or how, how often I spent times talking with the young men or young women from the high school who had found themselves in a situation where, where they had uh, picked up a disease and they needed to, to take care of it and tell their parents and work through all those things. So it's true and it's going on. But see, the Bible says, hey, whether, why you have it, whether it's an outbreak or not an outbreak, it's uncleanness. Every bed is unclean on which the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits will be unclean. And whoever touches his bed will wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. We talked about this. Remember, how do we lift someone up? We think that if we are living good, righteous, upstanding lives, and we go to those who are struggling, that just by being around them, we're going to help them out. But what does the Bible teach? That which is unclean can make the clean unclean. We, t- we, we gave the example before. You got two kids with measles, right? You got a third kid without. You take the third kid who doesn't have measles and rub them next to the kids who have it. What happens? Do they get better or the third one gets sick? So that's a concept that the Bible lays out for us. Now, how are we cleansed? What does it say? Wash with water. Wash with water. We're going to read that phrase all the way through. Bathe in water, and he's unclean till evening. He who sits on anything which he has had the discharge and sat shall wash his clothes and bathe with water and be unclean until evening. He who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. He who has the discharge spits on him who is clean. Then he shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean till evening. You see the point that God is making. Every single day, folks, we spend time in the world amidst a variety of things. Those that are unclean that we can tell just by looking at, like chapter 13 and 14. And those that we can't. But what's the bottom line? What's he say? Cleanse. Cleanse. Wash your clothes. Wash your clothes. Wash your clothes. It reminds me, though our sins were as scarlet, what? They shall be white as snow. We have to have the water of the word of God working through our... That's what we're doing tonight. Folks, if you were not here, I promise you, you would not go home and say, I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 15. In fact, you might even start to glance at it and say, there's no way I'm reading that. Let's go to something exciting. We'll read the Gospel of John. We'll go to Revelation. But Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. It's God's word... That washes us clean. We want to enable it to do that perfect work in our life. Any saddle on which the discharge has ridden shall be unclean. Whoever touches anything that was under him will be unclean till evening. He who carries any of these things will wash his clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. And whomever the one who has the discharge touches and has not rinsed his hands with water, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening, the vessel of the earth with which he has the discharge touches shall be broken. Every vessel of wood shall be rinsed with water. Now we read this and we think, well, yeah, I get it. Okay, be clean. You realize in 1800s, surgeons didn't even wash their hands. 
The chance of you dying in a hospital was greater than the chance of you being hit by the meteor walking outside. That's pretty good, huh? Anyhow, you get the idea. The point is, the point is, you went in the hospital, you died. That You know why? They would go in and prior to doing the surgeries, they would do all the autopsies. They would do all the autopsies, look at all the people who had died. They did not wash their hands and then they went into the other room and did surgery. And they were getting the same diseases that them people had died from and they couldn't figure it out. And the doctor who finally figured it out The people literally drove him to the loony bin. He actually died in an insane asylum because nobody would listen to what he said. That's the 1800s. Okay? We're looking at uh, 4,000 years, 3,000 years before that. The Bible saying, clean your hands. Wash your hands. Be clean. I shared with you before during the time of the plague in Europe. There's a black plague. The bubonic plague is moving through Europe and, and hundreds of thousands of people are dying, dead bodies in the street. One people group was literally untouched because of the cleanliness laws that God laid out in the book of Leviticus. Those Jews that were in Europe were untouched and Europe banned against them and assumed that they were the cause of the plague because they were untouched by it. And all they did was listen to what God's word said. God's word lays out for us truth. In verse 13, he says, Now when he, is, when he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, bathe his body in running water, and he shall be clean. And on the eighth day, he will take for himself two turtle doves. Okay, seven's a number of completion. The number of completion. So after seven days, he's sure that it hasn't come back. He's good to go. The eighth day, eight, is always a number of new beginnings. And how does it begin? With a sacrifice. Forgiveness of sins. Sacrifice both a sin offering and a burnt offering that's going to be offered to the Lord. Consecrating himself yet again to the Lord. And having his sins covered. Two turtle doves, two young pigeons will come before the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest will offer them. One is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering. So the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. This particular case, this particular reason, uh, not necessarily being anybody's fault. Who knows what was going on in the situation, whether, whether his or her wife or husband was running around Whatever the case, they had the discharge. They're going to offer up sacrifice for their sin and consecration unto the Lord at the time when they're cleansed, on the day of new beginnings. How many new beginnings have we had? I've had a few in my life. I've had a few times where I go through something and and coming out the end of that, I need a new beginning. And that's what the Lord's laying out for him here. Right here, hey, he's got a new beginning, a fresh start. Verse 16, now if any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash all of his body in water and be unclean until evening. Any garment and any leather on which there is semen, it will be washed with water and be unclean till evening. Also, when a woman lies with a man and there's an emission of semen, they will bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Ritual cleansing, you notice there's no sacrifice. 
Why is there no sacrifice? Because it's not sin. He's not talking about sin. He's talking about being clean. Being clean. Unfortunately, the church through years and years will look at the things that were written in the Bible, make up their own mind about what they ought to say, and come down and talk about all the horrors of what sex is. Listen, God wasn't surprised when sex occurred between Adam and Eve. He didn't look over at the Holy Spirit and tell him to go get a hose and break those people up. He knew what was going on. It is invented, created by God in the confines of marriage, and it is a beautiful, harmonious, and important part of marriage. So the Lord is just laying out this cleanliness non, not sin. There's no sacrifice, and God wants you to know he cares about it. He's involved. He wants to be involved every aspect of our life. When God calls us to holiness, he doesn't call us to holiness two-thirds of us. He doesn't call most of our body to be presented to the Lord, but he calls all of our body to be presented to the Lord. Scripture goes on now, 19. Now, if a woman has a discharge, and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days, and whoever touches her will be unclean until evening. Again, verse 19 through 24. Now we're going to talk about that uh, time of the month for every woman. I can only think of the bad things Kathy calls it, so I'm trying not to call it that. The point is, when, when a woman gets her period, the scripture lays out for us, hey, she's unclean. Now, that doesn't mean she's sinning. There's no sacrifice. She's, she's not unclean because of sin. But God is saying... Give her a break. Go get some Haagen-Dazs. Make sure that she has those things that she needs. You're going to let her alone for seven days. I don't think that's such a bad idea. He says, listen, everything that she lies on during her impurity will be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on uh, shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. Whoever touches anything uh, that she sat on shall wash his clothes, bathe in water, be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed or, or on anything on which she sits, which she touches, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her at all, so that her impurity is upon him, he shall be unclean seven days. And every bed on which he lies will be unclean also. Now what's going on? Listen. Every month, God is intending for there to be a a monthly renewal and appreciation of the wife. In fact, in Jewish tradition, what would take place during her her period of impurity, for those seven days, the man would give her the space stay away from her, she'd catch a break during that period of time. The daily things that would fall upon her would fall upon the rest of the family. At the end of those seven days, she would go to a mikvaot. She would go to a a ritual bath for a woman. They would go down in where there would be living water. Uh, A mikvaot kind of looks like a jacuzzi with stairs going down and stairs coming up, but it's totally covered. 
It's totally covered with rock above. You walk down in it, move around through the other side, cleanse yourself, come back out. Living water means water was flowing in, water was flowing out, and this is how they would cleanse themselves. Across the street, the men would wait. They would be standing there with flowers. They would be standing there looking forward to that opportunity when they could renew their relationship with their wife and they could be joined together again. And it happened every single month. Listen, the things that enter into our lives, how we look at them is going to affect how that affects our life, how, it, how we deal with the issues. Hey, I can look at it and, and complain and say how rotten it is and how lousy it is, or I can choose to see the fingerprints of God on a situation and say, hey, this is the way God intended it for, be, for, for it to be. This is the way God has developed our bodies, and this is the way God wants us to, to unite together with one another and to experience those things that he has for us. Now, verse 25, he goes on. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. This should remind you of something. Say in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Remember there was a woman who had a flow of blood for how long? 12 years. For 12 years, she'd been ceremonially unclean. For 12 years, she, she couldn't have those things that she ought to have been able to have. And we, Scripture doesn't tell us whether or not she was married. We just know she was unclean and she had spent every dime she had with doctors and they could offer her no hope. So as we look at this section of Scripture, let that story be reminded of that story. But the Lord lays out, he cares, he lays out the background for that story in Leviticus chapter 15. He lays out for us what it's all about. It says, every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as a, dead of, as a bed of her impurity. And whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity. Whoever touches those things will be unclean and will wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Now, if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day, again, day of new beginnings, she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons, bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. And the priest will offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness. But what's going on? Hey, the whole time she's unclean, can she go to the tabernacle? The whole time she's unclean, can she worship? The whole time, could she offer a sacrifice for anything at all? No, none of that was open to her. So on the day of new beginnings, she would be able to go in and offer up her sacrifice. One, a sacrifice for sin. Two, a sacrifice of consecration unto God. Hey, I belong to the Lord's. I'm here to serve him. So as we look at that woman in Luke chapter uh, 8, and we remember the story of Luke chapter 8. You remember? This woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and she wanted to touch the Lord. Where did she want to touch him? On the hem of his garment. Why the hem? And the hem was a symbol of power and authority 
in the, the Jewish tradition. Within the hem of the garment, there would be knots, knots tied in a certain way for each family, basically telling the story of the family. There was particular designs for each family. In fact, in some ways, in order to sign a document, you would press the hem of your garment into the seal. And that was that signature, like a signet ring being pressed into to wax on a document. It spoke of power and authority. It also had within the hem a blue ribbon. God commands a blue ribbon. We'll read about it as we continue to study uh, the book of Numbers. He's going to say, put this blue hem in. Why? What's it, what was the, the blue ribbon that was woven in? It was woven in so that they would keep their eyes on the future. They would keep their eyes on heaven. We're bound for heaven. We're looking to be with God. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God that had foundations, couldn't be rattled, couldn't be taken down. He was looking for that permanence. And that's what that blue spoke of. So when she says, listen, I, wanna, I just need to touch the hem. That was a place of power and authority. That was a place of hope. Think about all the stories that deal with the hem. David, he's hiding in a cave. In comes Saul. Saul comes in to relieve himself. David's men say, now's your chance. You can kill him. What did David do? Cut the hem of his garment. He cut the hem of his garment off. And then he was vexed. Why? He said, I shouldn't have laid hands on God's anointed. When he cut the hem, he was cutting him off, cutting off his power, cutting off his authority, saying, in essence, you are not God's anointed. Well, it's not that far off, is it? David had been anointed by God to be king, right? But David understood something. Saul fulfilled the office. And that office was to be respected, and it was God's job to take him out. God was using Saul to train up David, wasn't he? For 10 years, Saul hunted David in the caves. So David was vexed when he did that. What about the story of Ruth? When Ruth is lying next to Boaz, what did she say to Boaz? Lay the hem of your garment over me. I want to place myself under your authority. I want to place myself under your protection. I am offering myself to you. That was the story, the love story of Ruth and Boaz. And here, when the woman touched the hem of his garment, what did Jesus do? You remember the story? He stopped, said, who touched me? Now, the Bible says that there was a huge crowd and people were touching them all over the place. But Jesus knew something different had taken place, right? Now, Jesus knew exactly what had happened. And perhaps, you know, I don't know, but perhaps this, this section of Scripture that we're reading about in Leviticus chapter 15 is pointing directly to her. Pointing directly to her that God cared about this woman. Here's Jesus walking through. She reaches out, touches the hem of his garment, and the Bible says immediately she was healed. She knew immediately she didn't have to wonder she didn't have to think it was over jesus said who touched me and the disciples said lord everybody's touched you what do you mean who touched you jesus said i felt power leave from out of my body who touched me and and the bible says when she realized that that she was known now that tells me jesus is probably looking right at her when she said it who touched me i know somebody touched me was me, Lord. That's unlawful. She's unclean. She's not even allowed to be there. 
But there she was. Believing what? If I can just touch Jesus, I'll be made clean. The story is the same for you and me. If we can just touch Jesus, we will be clean. We need to stay right beside him, right along next to the Lord. God is the one that makes us whole. God is the one that makes us clean. And that's the point that's going on. And we get our new day. We get our eighth day where what? Jesus pays the price for our sins. Our sins are washed, washed away, right as snow. And we consecrate ourselves to the Lord. I'm yours. How many times did the children of Israel have to do it? However many times it took. How many times do we do it? However many times it takes. We consecrate ourselves to the Lord and ask for that blessing. Now listen, verse 31. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness, when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. Listen, he calls for them to be set apart. Set apart. And because of these uncleanliness laws, the nation of Israel is going to be a relatively clean place, especially compared to their Canaanite neighbors. But listen, it's important that we understand something. These ceremonial ritual cleansings did nothing to make someone right with God. In fact, when he talks about defiling his tabernacle, this promoted hygiene in ancient Israel. But the discharges of semen or of blood had nothing to do with whether or not someone was a sinner or not a sinner. And there's nothing inherently wrong with either of those situations. But because the two are connected with redemption, God uses this as an example. They're the symbol of life, and redemption, the seed and the blood. And so the Lord sets them apart. They point to life and redemption. Now, as we go on in chapter 16, we're all excited to leave chapter 15 behind. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of his two sons, the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother, not to come at just any time to the Holy of Holies inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Let's say you were watching the nation of Israel and you were thinking, wow, what are they doing? They're building this tent structure. You come alongside one of the Israelis and you say, hey, what are you guys doing? He said, well, we're building the tabernacle where the one true God meets with us and we, we meet with him. Well, that's pretty cool. I, I, I want to meet with uh, the one true God. Well, he says, well, you have to be an Israeli. You have to be the children of Israel. Okay, well, you know, I, I, could, become, I could become one of the children of Israel. Surely he could. But then you also had to be of the tribe of Levi. Not just of the tribe of Levi. You had to be of the tribe of Levi and in the direct lineage of Aaron. And not only the tribe of Levi and the direct lineage of Aaron, but you had to be his oldest living son to be the high priest so that you could go in one day per year into the presence of God. That's how people drew near to the Lord during that time. One person 
one day, not without blood, coming into the presence of Almighty God to, to lift up the sins of the nation and receive forgiveness or a covering for another year. And that's what's being laid out for us in chapter 16. Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur or Kippur. It means covering. The day of covering. They would call it the great day, the day of days, the day of atonement. It was the day when their sins were covered. One day a year, one person entering in to the very presence of God. And this is what he's saying. Tell Aaron he can't come in whenever he wants But only one time, only one person, only one day. Listen to the picture that God's going to paint here. Check it out. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place. Now you'll notice in your Bibles, please, hopefully, that the word holy is normal and place is italics. Place is not there. When it says holy, place with italics, he's talking about the holy of holies. The, the holy place, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the mercy seat, entering into that small section of the tabernacle. Now, he lays out for us, as you come, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He's going to come in, but he has to come in with blood. He has to enter in and pay the price for his sin, which is why this becomes a picture of the covering. Listen, Hebrews tells us that Jesus didn't have to come in and first offer an offering for his own sin. Why? First Peter tells us that he was without sin, a lamb, perfect, complete. That's why he died once for all mankind. No limited atonement, complete atonement, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what's the scripture say? Shall be saved. The price has been paid. Jesus becomes the ultimate picture. But look at what happens. He will put on his holy linen tunic and his linen trousers on his body, be girded with a linen sash and a linen turban. This is how he will be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he will wash his body in water and put them on. Now, you know what you just didn't hear him say? This is what took place. He took off all his royal robbery. Remember all the articles of the priest's clothing we talked about? The robe of blue, the tunic of many colors, the stones of all the children of Israel on his chest and on his shoulders, all the crown that said holiness to the Lord, all of that stuff was stripped off. And he wore only the white linen that every other priest wore. Now, we could look at it and say that's no big deal. Or we could look at it in light of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. The great kenosis that Jesus, in like manner, took off his robes of royalty and the right to demand worship as Almighty God and set them aside and came just like every other man. He came, humbled himself, and came as a bondservant. Man. Fully God, fully man. He didn't strip aside his deity. He just laid aside them royal robes, his rights. He laid those aside, and he came in plain 
linen. Just like the high priest here, he'd come in plain linen. Humbly come. Well, what happens? Then he would wash his body in the mikvaot. He would walk in, wash his body, and be dressed in clean white linen. I'm reminded of Jesus Christ. Comes. Where do we see him with John? At baptism, mikvaot. Cleansed because of his own sin? No. As a, as a picture, as a painting to us. And then he goes about performing the work of the ministry. Look what happens. Now he will take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. So the first thing that we're going to see in this, the first thing that we're reading about is the preparation of the priests. There's three things. Preparation of the priest, the preparation of the place, and the preparation of the people. That's what chapter 16 is all about. So he's preparing the priest. He's getting him set. He's being clothed. His sins are being accounted for by the sacrifice of the bull. And then he's going to be made right in a right relationship with God to go forward and enter into that holy of holies, into the very presence of God. First making an offering for his sin. Then he says in verse 7, He will take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron will cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other for the Azazel, the scapegoat. Azazel, but more than scapegoat, Azazel literally means the complete removal. One is going to be the offering, and the other is going to be set outside of the city until it wanders out of view. What's that remind us of? What, did, what, did, what does the scripture say as far as what? The east is from the west. That's how far he has removed our transgression from us. One goat will die. The other is set free. We'll see uh, this take place as we go on a little bit further. Now, it says, uh, The goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron will bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, make atonement for himself in his house, and will kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Then he will take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. He will put the incense of the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. So he's laying out. First he's going to bring the blood of the bull for his sin. He's going to bring in the censer. He's going to anoint the golden altar, the altar of incense, the altar of prayer. He's going to anoint it with incense. The smoke of the incense is going to cover the mercy seat. The mercy seat will be covered in the prayers. Now, folks, all we got to do is read the book of Revelation, and you can see all this imagery again. Only where do you see it? In heaven. The prayers of the saints. The golden censer. 
The golden censer filled with the prayers of the saints that an angel casts down to the earth as God answers the prayers of his saints that were, that, whose lives were taken from them. We see the same picture in heaven. Why? Why do we see it in heaven? Well, hold your finger here and go to Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews gives a great commentary on these very things that are going on. Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as other high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. So we see Jesus Christ coming in this place. Uh, Chapter 9 goes on to tell us. What did he do? He brought the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it not in places made with hands, but in the heavens on the mercy seat. Where's the Ark of the Covenant today? Anybody find it? No. It's a replica of what? The throne of God. The mercy seat where the blood of Jesus Christ was sprinkled to to purge the sins of all who would believe. Everything we see taking place in the earthly tabernacle is a shadow of the reality of the things that are taking place in heaven. That's what the scripture is laying out. That's what he's he's laying out for us. Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 9. Going to lay out those same things for us. So he lays this incense... He, plays, he lays it there, it covers the mercy seat. And in verse 14, it says he will take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times on the east side. Eastern gate, golden gate. Anybody know which gate Jesus returns through? golden gate sprinkles it seven times interesting seven we know is a number of completion that sins are completely covered but even more than that you know jesus bled from seven places on his body right crown of thorns left hand right hand left foot right foot and his side seven times blood sprinkled on the east side of the mercy seat pointing toward the golden gate, the place through which Jesus would return with the golden gate of the temple, not of the tabernacle. And then it says, he will kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. First, sin for himself, then sin for the people. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgression from all their sin. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. He's going to bring in that goat that was offered. First his own blood, then 
the blood of the sacrifice given for the people. Now, think about this goat and the symbolism between this goat and Jesus Christ. Like Jesus, the goat was of the people of Israel, right? It was part of them taken from the tribes of, the, of, of Israel and offered as the sin offering for the people. What else? So spotless, just as the scripture declares for us, Jesus was spotless. What else? It was chosen by God, just as Jesus is chosen by God. His blood is going to be applied to the mercy seat, even as the blood of Jesus Christ was applied in that holy place. Just as this goat pictures that perfect offering that the scripture lays out for us in the book of Hebrews. Then, in verse 17, it says, There will be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy of holies until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. So how did the high priest go in? Alone. How did Jesus go? Alone. By himself, because Jesus did it all, and Jesus did it himself. Verse 18. And he will go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it, and shall... Take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he will sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times. And he will cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So first we saw the preparation of the priest, what he wore, what he did. Now we see the preparation of the place. Making an atonement for sin anointing the altar by the blood of sacrifice, anointing the golden altar by the blood of the sacrifice, anointing the mercy seat with the blood of the sacrifice. That by the blood of the sacrifice, these things are made clean and holy, set apart for the use for which God had intended them to be. Verse 20, it says, And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he will bring in the live goat. And on this goat he will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sin, putting them on the head of the goat and will send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. He's going to bring in that goat, lay both hands upon its head, and confess the sins of the nation, the transgressions of the nation, all placed symbolically upon the scapegoat. Look at the picture that God's painting on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when their sins will be as far as the east is from the west. There will be death, the application of blood, and then their sins will be removed. That's what's taking place. Yom Kippur. That's what's happening. He's confessing the sins. The sins are imputed unto the goat. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. And he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now the tradition says that they would walk with that goat. They would lead it with a scarlet thread, a scarlet string. And that as they walked with that goat, when they knew the sacrifice was accepted by the Lord, when the scarlet 
thread turned white. And they'd set the, the goat free and off he'd go. Now that's Jewish tradition. That's not what the scripture teaches. But it's part of the concept that they teach. That that sin, that 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 goat would be taken usually 10 miles outside of the city to the wilderness. And then that man would watch it until he couldn't see the goat anymore. And then their sins were gone. As far as the east is from the west. Now listen, another Jewish tradition was on the Day of Atonement was the only day that the high priest entering into the Holy of Holies was allowed to pronounce the impronounceable name of God. The Yahweh, the, the YHVH, the Tetragrammaton, the four consonants that made up the name of God. When he entered into the Holy of Holies, he would pronounce it. He had to pronounce it properly. How did he know it? Because the high priest before him on his deathbed would whisper to him the name of God and he would pass it on from one high priest to the next high priest to the next high priest until somewhere in the passing of time it was lost. And nobody knows it. YHVH, the name of God, impronounceable today, but at one time... It was known. And then they would blow the shofar and they would say this prayer. Our righteous Messiah has departed from us. We are horror stricken and have none to justify us. Our iniquities and the yoke of our transgressions. He carries who is wounded because of our transgressions. He bears on his shoulder the burden of our sins to find pardon for our iniquities. And by his stripes, we shall be healed. O eternal one, it is time that you should create him anew. Every year on the Day of Atonement, that's the prayer that they would pray. They would blow the shofar and they would call out for their Messiah, who they just pictured by everything that they did. The sacrifice and the scapegoat, removing their sins as far as the east is. For, well, the picture doesn't end. The picture doesn't end there. In verse 23, Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the Holy of Holies, and will leave them there. And he will wash his body with water in a holy place, and put on his garments, literally his royal robes, and come out and offer the burnt offering and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for them. So the Bible tells us Jesus took off his royal robes, came, lived righteous, sinless life, died sinless perfection, ushered in the, the, the atonement that puts us in a right relationship with God. But now his royal robes are back on. Now he is the Most High. When he returns in Revelation chapter 19, he's not wearing white linen. He's not coming as the lamb. He's coming as the lion. The royal robbery is back on. The, the price has been paid, and now he comes to set up his kingdom. So the priest would take off those 
white robes and he would leave them behind. That's over, that's done. He would put on the the royal robbery that he had, all those things that pointed to Jesus Christ. And he would come out and make the burnt offering. What was the burnt offering? An offering of consecration. I am yours. That's what the burnt offering said. First for himself and then for the nation. I am yours. Totally, completely, utterly given to you. He would make that offering. And then the fat of the sin offering he would burn. And he who released the goat and the scapegoat will wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward, he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought to make an atonement for the nation in the Holy of Holies, shall be carried outside the camp. And they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. By the way, where was Jesus slain? Where was his body taken? Outside the camp, outside the wall, outside the city, just like the sin offering. We talked about it before. Just like the sin offering, he was offered outside of the city. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And this shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you will afflict your souls. And do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. On the seventh month, seven speaks of completion, right? And the tenth day, ten is the number of the law. On the seventh month, tenth day, they would afflict their souls. Have we completely kept the law? No. So the Day of Atonement. Did they keep the law? No. So on the Day of Days, the Day of Atonement, they would make atonement. But the sin sacrifice, the work of the high priest pointing to Jesus Christ. The offering, the sacrifice pointing to Jesus Christ. And the people receiving the the pronunciation at the end of it all, your sins are covered. One more year. Your sins are covered one more year. Until who? Until Jesus Christ. And their sins are not covered anymore. It's not symbolic anymore. As far as the east is from the west. So far he has removed our transgression from us. He has taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. That's what the, the, the scripture tells us in the, in the book of Colossians been nailed to the cross, taken out of the way, removed. It's out of the picture. It's gone. It's over. It's done with. And that's what the scripture is laying out for him here on the seventh month, tenth day. For on that day, the priest will make an atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. How are we clean from all our sins before the Lord? First John 1 9 says, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He who became sin for us so that we might what? Become the righteousness of God. So that we might be made clean. And then it says in verse 31, It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. By the way, that's not a Saturday. 
the seventh month, the tenth day. Occasionally it would come on a Sabbath, but more often it would be a holy day. The high holy day of most of their feasts were also a Sabbath day. Not necessarily a Saturday Sabbath, but a holy day upon which there could be no work. Why was it so important they did no work that day? Because the work was all being done for them. What were they to do? Enter into the rest that was provided. Well, who is the rest? Scripture says that Jesus has become our Sabbath rest. And we're to enter into his rest. Is there some work we're supposed to do to enter into his rest? Jesus was asked, what must I do to do the work of salvation? You remember what he said? Believe in him who the Father has sent. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and rest. The work is done. Just like here, the work would be done for them. This is a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. Still today they afflict their souls. They can't offer no sacrifice, so they come together and they, they look back over the year, over their failures, over their sins, and they pray and hope that their good works have outweighed those things that enable them or cause them to fall short. But they missed the point, right? It's a Sabbath. There is no work. There is only resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Resting in the finished work of our high priest, according to the book of Hebrews. And then it says, And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister a priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes in his holy garments. It was passed down from high priest to the oldest son. And he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting, for the altar. He will make atonement for the priests and for the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Well, as we close up tonight, I just want to share with you from the book of Hebrews once again. Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 24 it says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time 
apart from sin for salvation. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for the truth of your word, God, that, Lord, you laid out for us. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word in the book of Leviticus begins with the phrase, and God said to Moses, your word, these pictures, this this picture that you paint for us in Leviticus, a picture of, of sin and how sin needed to be dealt with. The picture of being consecrated and devoted unto you. The picture of what a sacrifice truly is. So that when we read the words that the Apostle Paul penned, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. We can go to Leviticus and see what that's all about. What is a sacrifice? You can't just sort a sacrifice. Sacrifice requires it all. Everything, all you have, laid on the altar, consecrated unto God. Lord, as we look at the scriptures that indicate, Father, that you desire to be a part of every part of our life, not just the parts everyone can see, not just the things that that we want people to know or people to see, but God, you want to be a part of every aspect of our life, every single aspect, Lord, through the book of Leviticus, you say, Be holy unto me. This is also a part of your life that I want to be in. That I want to be remembered. That I want to be consecrated. As he calls us, be holy as I am holy. Come out from among them. Don't be just like everybody else. But be holy, consecrated unto me. Father, as we look, as we apply May we not just see words on a page, but may we realize, God, you're calling us to a life of consecration and holiness to you. Every closet of our house, every wall, everywhere that you may go, you call us that we would not defile the tabernacle. And Paul would tell us in the book of Corinthians that corporately we are the tabernacle of God. Corporately. And we want to come together before you holy. You tell us in the book of Corinthians that individually we are the temple of God. And you want that temple to be consecrated unto you. Holy. Clean. Perfect. But God, it's not made perfect by what we do. It's made perfect by who we are touching. We need to touch Jesus. We need to touch the hem of your garment, your authority, your power. We need to be connected to you because in your substitutionary death, you became our sin that we might become your righteousness. That we can be right with God because we believe. God, help us apply. Not just see words on a page. Not just hear crazy things that people did thousands of years ago. But realize the truth of your word, God. That every piece, every part of your word didn't cease being true. 
will always be true, has always been true, and will always lead us to the truth. Father, may we make that application. Draw near unto you as you draw near unto us. May we make the choice, God, to be ye holy. Not just like everyone else. But that our desire is to draw near to you. We all stand on the same ground. None of us is closer to heaven than any other. Our choice is how close we will stand to you. We'll be satisfied to stand way outside just just where we think it's safe? Or do we want to be as close to you as we can? I can only touch your hymn. I can only touch the truth, the reality of who you are if I'm willing to press in and lay hold of all that you have for us. Father, we ask that you would be magnified and glorified in this place as we seek to know you in a greater degree. We lay these things before you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.